And here we are. Here everybody is. Hello, brothers. Hello, brothers. Good to see you both. So, what are we pontificating about this week? <laughs> um, I don't know. I th- I'd like to come up with something to talk about other than what we have to talk about. You mean other than what we all collectively have to talk about? Yeah. Well, I think that's the purpose of the show in in many respects. Is to talk about it, even though we may not want to talk about it. Well, there's actually some interesting stuff to talk about. There's a lot to unpack here. (laughs) Yes, there is. As they say. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... So wait, you, I thought you were saying you'd rather you wanted to talk about this because you'd rather not talk about things like the election or the pandemic or the other things. But you actually don't want to talk about this. I, I'd rather talk about the election and the pandemic than about this movie. Wow. No, not really. Wow. <laughs> no, we can't waffle. If you say it, it's it's you can't be like. Well, I, 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 I was uh, a little I was disappointed, to say the least. OK, let's can we. Can we set up? Can we tell people? We should talk about what movie we're talking Here's about. This people don't know what this is. <laughs> Let's not just keep harping on this. Oh well, you know me; I'm a harper. Um, we uh, you we're talking to... about Harper, the 1966 movie starring Paul Newman, Lauren Bacall, a lot of other people who we'll get into. Shelley Winters. Uh, Shelley Winters. Um, and it's uh, based on the 1949 Ross McDonald Lou Archer book. They changed the name to Lou Harper instead of Lou Archer. Don't know why. I know, I know, I know why, too. You know why? Oh, okay, good. Because they only own the rights to this one story, and they didn't, know, they didn't own the rights to the series. So they, they had to change the name of the main character. And Paul Newman wanted them to na- give it an H name b- because he had had good luck with HUD and the Hustler. And he said, you know, whatever whatever name you came up, come up with, come up with an H name, I thought was right. right. And he had such good luck with HUD that he decided to play the same part in this movie in spite of the fact that it's supposed to be a completely different character. Um, is that the way you're going to set up the movie for like an unbiased viewing audience? Like the, you know, this is this is what it is, and then we're going to get right away into this is a this is no damn good. Yeah. No. Why don't you tell us more about the movie, and then I'll go off on my literary wanderings. Well, I mean, we might mention other things, like it was directed by Jack Smite, who is a very famous television director who made a bunch of films, but is more well known for his TV work. Um, right. Twilight Zone for sure. He did four very famous episodes of Twilight Zone. I think he did a lot of Gunsmoke, a lot of things like that. And interestingly, it has a lot of connections to a movie, a lot of movies that I love a lot, uh, including um, uh, Once a Time in Hollywood, which I think is referencing some of Jack Smite's work in the movie as well. So that's kind of an interesting loop. Uh, an incredible, I mean, it, it. the cast is really remarkable. You've got like Struther Martin, Julie Harris is in this movie, Arthur Hill, Robert Wagner, uh, Robert Weber. Um, and the, the list does kind of go on. It's really it's it's really in a, a remarkable collection of people of that time. And it was shot by 
one of my absolute favorite uh, cinematographers in history, Conrad Hall, who um, uh, has done, you know, In Cold Blood and the list goes on of great films that he shot. Butch Cassidy, yeah. uh, Road to Perdition. And, yeah. Leg, uh, leg. So it's, it's weird because it's a movie that has all these legendary talents in it. You know, the cast is half the casts are legends. The, 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 it was William Goldman's first uh, solo credit. As yeah. A play. And, uh, and in spite of all of that, no, <laughs> well, there, there's there's barely a performance in it that you would think these people did anything other than this that was any good. Yeah, I, and I just every performance I I didn't accept Julie Harris's first scene. I thought, wow, there's an actor for a little while. Julia, there and there's some casting. Julie Harris is a heroin addict. Jazz jazz musician is one of the more remarkable uh, fits in in film history. They, you know, gave the role, they gave her the role because of her singing. You mentioned um, Robert Weber, uh, and I just want to point out that he was in Twelve Angry Men and The Dirty Dozen. So, and bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Oh, no, he likes movies about twelve things. <laughs> interesting <laughs> interesting um so that that's the movie's deal you know it's um it came out in 1966 which i think is a really interesting point to discuss here too it's very much part of what this movie is and what went wrong well i i think it's safe to say that if anybody has watched this movie because we're watching it i i have to say i understand this this is the most misogynistic film I think we've seen the entire time that we've been doing this. Um, and uh, I was, I was pretty like shocked and offended by a couple of things that happened in this movie. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. I don't get shocked or offended pretty in a easily. Uh, but I, there were some things in this that I was like, wow, wow. Janet Lee, Janet Lee was actually treated better in psycho than she was in this movie. Yeah. And she was, she's, yeah. I, I did notice one thing about that though, which, which I thought was, was worth mentioning, which is that it is, it, it, what, what was, what was interestingly progressive about it uh, was that the the casting was was age appropriate to Paul Newman, which was interesting. In that Janet, you know, Janet Lee as his wife was born like the same year, or or I mean, maybe there's like a two year difference between Janet Lee and, and Paul Newman. Um, the the people that that uh, that Paul Newman was paired up with uh, in any kind of romantic fashion were were age appropriate to him, which which was interesting because so often um, leading ladies are cast who are you know fifteen twenty years younger than their male counterparts. So that that part of the film was interesting in spite of its misogyny. That's actually that's a good point. I I did note that watching it, I was like, wow, you know, they're not usually you'd see kind of you'd think of Paul Newman at that time paired up with somebody the age of the young girl who is yeah. the daughter of of uh, Lauren Bacall's character, and 
you know, he he definitely dismisses her completely. But you find out later he's still kind of carrying the torch for this person. You don't really know the depth of it until a little later on. For but, his yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Matthew, I'm curious. You know, you're 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 like of the three of us, the way mo like more versed in detective literature and detective, uh, you know, the mythology of that. You read the book that this was based on. I mean you really had a rough time with this movie. Is that because you, you really loved the book or? I did really love the book. I think I would have had a rough time with the movie regardless. Um, but, but particularly the way it does not move well from 1949 to 1966 at all. There are a lot of themes in the movie, in the, in the book that relate to world war two and with with trying to adjust to life and manhood back in this post-war world um and uh f the familiarity with violence and and particularly uh robert wagner's character who had been a pilot in world war ii and now has to come back to, you know, has to come back to a world, you know, he gets out of high school, he goes to war, he's flying planes, he's a hero, he comes back to the United States, and he's just a high school grad. And what is he going to do to become successful and a man again? Um, uh, is, they it raise, in, is it said in Hollywood? I felt all of that from Robert Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> it, it is set in Hollywood. One one very interesting um, uh, piece of trivia as I was reading the book, and I see that the beginning of the book takes place in this town called Santa Teresa, which is clearly a stand in for Santa Barbara. Uh, and I suddenly realized, hey, wait a second, the Sue Grafton Kinsey Malone series takes place in a town called Santa Teresa that is a stand-in, you know, the Kinsey Malone series, A is for Alibi, B is for Burger, C oh, yeah. a huge series, um, which sadly, um, uh, Sue Grafton passed away, I believe, like after, at around X or Y. I mean, she almost finished oh, the alphabet. Oh, yeah. Uh, but when I looked it up, her her naming her, her Santa Barbara naming it Santa Teresa was her homage to Ross McDonald because he was such a, a founder of this, um, of modern hard boiled and, and, and Ross McDonald was really looked on as somebody who transformed the genre. One of the first writers to legitimize it in a way by bringing psychological elements into it so that it wasn't just this hard-boiled thing but he brought more literary elements into it um and he went on to write 18 novels about this character from 1949 into the early 70s um uh and the way he uses language in the uh in the book is just great there's there's one passage uh, that's so that I want to read that's so great about he has to go to a movie studio at one point to to get a piece of information and he walks up to the studio and he says uh, I parked around the corner in a residential block and lugged my bag of clubs to the main entrance of the studio there were 10 or 12 people sitting on straight back chairs outside the casting office 
trying to look sought after and complacent. A girl in a neat black suit brushed threadbare was taking off her gloves and putting them on. A grim-faced woman sat with a grim-faced little girl on her knee, dressed in pink silk and whining. The usual assortment of displaced actors, fat, thin, bearded, shaven, tuxedoed, sombreroed, sick, alcoholic, and senile, sat there with great dignity, waiting for nothing. <laughs> nice, no, nice portrait of our industry. <laughs> that's a movie that I would pay to see. Yeah. And then he has one great line later. Uh, he says, near the corner of Hollywood and Vine, where everything ends and a great many things begin. Um, but uh, Harper is not, uh, Archer is not married in the book. There's an ex-wife who's barely mentioned. And he's happier alone. He's glad it's over, um, or so it seems. Um, the one thing I will say about the casting in the movie is when you read the book and you, you read the description of Mrs. Sampson and you hear her lines, you do see and hear Lauren Bacall's voice. She is a perfect fit for that role. And so is Arthur Hill a perfect fit for his role. And nobody else fits at all. Um, I, I have a little piece of trivia about this movie, personal. Okay. I, and you may have to guess who these people are, but, but I've actually worked on projects with three of the cast members of this movie. Uh, well, I know one is Lauren Bacall. Yes. Um, uh, I don't have to figure it all all out right now. And and don't go to IMDb because that's cheating. Oh, Harold Gould. No. No? No. You must have worked with Robert Weber at some point, I would imagine. No. no. Okay. Robert no. Wagner? Yeah, yeah. And Janet Lee. Oh. When did you work with Janet Lee? In, was well, that Halloween H? Was she in Halloween H? Yeah, she was in Halloween H. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, we should watch worked, that in a couple of weeks. We should I worked with Janet Lee's daughter. <laughs> the, the other one. Oh, okay. The other one. Kelly, Kelly um, who looks exactly like her mom. Uh, there, there were, you know, you were reading some of the, the literary references, Emmett, uh, Emmett, Matthew, um, to, uh, to, to the books that this was based on, but th there are some choice lines in this movie, I, I have to say. Um, <laughs> Here we go. But like, uh, when, when Janet Lee says to him, she, she says to Paul Newman, uh, what do you want from me? And he says, anything I can get. I thought that was excellent. Yeah, that's pretty good. And I like, I like when he says, the happiness market's crashed, baby. <laughs> there is well, some great stuff in it, man. I loved, speaking you of- hired, You were hired by a bitch to find scum. <laughs> I like the bottom is loaded with nice people, Albert. Only cream and bastards rise. There you go. 
Well, I mean, without any irony at all, I have two lines that kill me in this movie. And one is all about the delivery because it's my personal favorite Paul Newman moment. I wish I had ripped this because I, I haven't. Um, I, and I'm going to say I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I've got my back against the wall because there's a lot about this movie I'm going to go to bat for. Not the second half of it. I'm going to go to bat heavily for the first half of it. Um, but uh, Paul Newman asking if he can have a sandwich when he's by the pool is yeah. the greatest goddamn thing I've seen all year. Yeah. He, he, he embodies, I don't care better than anybody I've seen in, in my life. There's a tray of sandwiches sitting out at a poolside thing. And he's at this rich person's house and he's just been hired to do this job. And he runs into the daughter of the person that hired him, who is this kind of dimwitted girl who's dancing to, to like opera music by the pool and her kind of idiotic boyfriend and he doesn't even Paul Newman doesn't want to be here and there's just a tray of like like endless food out on the on the on the porch and uh he walks by and they're talking to him and he's completely disinterested and he's just basically starving because we saw him get up not get his coffee make this long trip out there and uh and he's broke and he doesn't have money for for food and the sandwich is like crucial it's absolutely crucial and they've set it up perfectly because he's he he can't even make himself a pot of coffee. Right. Like yeah. Yeah. It's a very famous moment. They actually talked. Uh, uh, they were talking about in this article I read about uh, the decision to have that coffee just not work out for him. Yeah. He tries to make the coffee and it is out of fresh. And he actually uses the old grinds from yesterday. And um, that was the moment that the that William Goldman said he figured out who the guy how to write him because that was the whole key to the entire to the whole character and i think the audience this movie was a huge hit huge hmm. and i, I mean I, I think um he was already a star paul newman but i think this film this film solidified him in a way that was really really different um yeah. and well, yeah, yeah done harp uh, he had already done hud and he had already done the hustler so he he was sure but he was he, was he had done like two or two movies that were great and a lot of performances that people noticed and they were he was on the radar but it was like whether he was going to be a legend or not i think was starting to get solidified on this movie yeah. um anyway his casual thing was so great but you know matthew at the end of the day i think that you really hit it on the head if you take the war experience out of these kinds of novels, whether it's World War II or Vietnam or Korea or Korea, the characters returning from those wars were the people that define this genre, you know? Yeah. And it feels and like it but, being this happy go lucky thing. Just yeah, and yes. So it it really did feel like it needed some teeth that it never had, and I never felt like I understood as much as I really love Paul Newman. I just felt like the construction of the character didn't give me a reason to believe why he could do the things that he that he could do. It it seemed like I thought maybe for a while, like is he just a, an actor that didn't make it in L.A. that now is a detective because he's so good at acting, like he plays that part, that classic. Um, moment from uh, you, you know uh, the bogey thing where he goes and like he'll put a hat on backwards and impersonate somebody going to a bookshop right. and and Newman does this several times he puts cotton in his mouth and he pretends right. to be somebody and he's doing these other characters and bits but he has other than that no no background which may have been on on purpose but it didn't 
it just lacked teeth, you know, for me. The other, the other, the other uh, trope from so much of, of so many of these films in this genre that, that they seem to completely gloss over is the relationship with law enforcement where there's no animosity. He's talking on the he's talking on the sheriff's you know uh, car radio. He's in a position of authority half the time with the law enforcement in the in the movie. And and there are so many other films in these genres where there's nothing but animosity and and hostility between law enforcement and the private detective. And 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 this this film just kind of seemed to blur that line completely. You, you kind of who the he, real bosses, he bosses that sheriff around. He basically slaps yeah. that guy around, and I guess it's because he's protected by that powerful lawyer, you know, by the by the family lawyer, or somehow in with the you know officials, or that's what they're trying to. Yeah, that's never really made clear in the movie. It's There's like, a little bit of that in the book, <laughs> but, but it, it's made more clear in the book in that he uh, he used to work for the Arthur Hill character, and the Arthur Hill character used to be the district attorney, uh, and he was an investigator for a while. Um this this movie was really interesting on a personal level for me watching it because I remember seeing this film. I don't know if I saw it in the theaters or if I saw it, you know, on television 10 years after it was in the theaters, but I saw it when I was very young. And and I remember I, I mean I would have been 10 years old when this came out. And I remember being confused by it and thinking it was because I was too young and I, and watching it this time, I realized it's not because I was too young. It's because it's really hard to know what the fuck is going on in this movie. Like what, what are the stakes? What is the, what are the, what are the, what are the goals? What, what is, I, I didn't understand half of the, the, uh, the plot of the film. And I, and I ceased caring by the time it was revealed. Yeah. The plot in the book is is as complicated, and I think one of the problems with the film was that they did not, they pretty much tried to cram every plot twist in a fairly long novel into this film. I don't think that's the problem, I honestly, because it's not, it, uh, because those movies can be pretty impenetrable. You know, I mean, yeah. even the big sleep is hard to follow. Uh, the people that made it don't even know who killed one of the characters in that movie. I, I, for me, think that this kind of thing lives and dies by atmosphere, you know, and it, and it, the first half hour of this film has, to me, incredible atmosphere. It's brilliantly constructed. There's so many things I love about it. And it, the misstep happens a little, a, a little more than maybe 40 minutes in where, I don't even remember the scene, but I felt you feel yourself losing the, the tension goes out of it somehow. And I think it's a combination of things like we don't know enough about his past to know that when he's pushed too far, he'll do this or that. Yeah. Missing right. that element. We don't know where his pathos comes from. There's a really interesting things that he does throughout the movie. And I think there's something in the clip that you might show when you show it that refers to this. But I, I don't know if you want to show that clip right which, now which clip the clip that you it was the one in the boathouse 
Uh, I, I sent it to you. You asked me to do it. The first one you asked. Oh, me. okay. I might have cut out some of it. Uh, because you know, it's the very well, the very end of it. I didn't cut out the very end of it. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. The other thing that's interesting about him, from a just from his character development element, is that he oftentimes in these stories, the the protagonist ends up having some kind of um complicated relationship with someone that's actually involved in the case and it's just interesting that that the person that he's hung up on and actually has the most complex emotional relationship with is his ex-wife and she's got nothing to do with the case it's it's just completely removed yeah. it's like a separate storyline i feel like they try to do it a little bit with the um with the uh um who is it? Uh, Arthur Hill character. Cause they, they have this camaraderie, this friendship at first, and it's not enough of one though. It doesn't matter. It, it's just that they kind of know each other. So right. and the book that really matters. Yeah. And in the book, the Pamela Tiffin character, the young, the young woman is much more interesting. She's still immature but she she plays them off against each other in a very interesting way and complicates their relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, let's play that clip that you were talking about, Tony, if does, you want. Yeah. Does, does she go-go dance on a diving board, though? No. Oh, well, that book doesn't have everything, then, does it? And the first time we see her, she's in a swimming pool with the Robert Wagner character. And she's coming on to him and he's pushing, he's angry and pushing her away. He does not want her attentions at all. Oh. And, and yeah. Um, but let's watch that clip because there's something you want to talk about with it, but then there's something that I want to, something completely different that I know I want to talk about with it. So this is a moment, uh, where, uh, he's being chased by one of the bad guys. We don't know really why though. Why did you pull that one? Uh, I pulled it because I want to point something out about the music. Why did you, what did you want to talk about, about it? A character, a, char a character thing. Do you talk about the character thing and then we'll, well, well actually. And, I, and I've got something about a casting thing in it, so. Uh, oh, okay. Well, let's go, since we've just heard it, Let's go to the thing that I want to point out about the music. The music was uh, written by Johnny Mandel. Mm -hmm. 
who also did the music for another movie that came out in 1966 called The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Oh, I forgot that. And there's a scene in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and listen to the music in this scene. Now you say you're going to blow up the town, huh? Well, I say... I say, all right. You start shooting and see what happens. almost the same music it may be the same cue in fact the other one starts with that rising note that one long mm -hmm. rising note in the symbols and then goes into the the boom 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 it's very star trek actually also yeah it is very star trek uh so you had a character thing you wanted to talk about uh, yeah it was the kind of detail that paul newman brought to it that's just not in the i don't know if it's in the script or whatever but it's it's his reaction to the death the guy falling yeah which is a brutal stunt i mean it's not a stunt they throw a dummy off that thing but it's really actually effective how that simple that simple guy uh, falling oh, fall stunt can you sound is really heavy yeah yeah I, I can hear you but paul newman sees it in like turns away like really affected by it like he really is upset that it had to end that way it looks like and i just thought you know that's this it, it happens two or three times in the movie he actually responds to violence that way and it's really really uh they really lay on it and they and it's not an accident and it was the kind of stuff that i felt like he was trying to bring to the character that the script wasn't the narrative wasn't supporting it but he was trying to bring some depth to it. I just thought that moment was great. What about the casting that you were, were you talking about? Well, one thing about that though, because what I thought it was, was that there was a moment in that shot that you could see that it was a dummy. Like there was a little bit of a, and I thought that's what he was reacting to. Like, ah, damn, we didn't get the fucking shot. Uh, no, that's, you're absolutely misreading the moment. Totally. <laughs> Totally. You can't, you're not allowed to read the books anymore. Movies are different. <laughs> different things. Yes. I, well, Adam, what was, I think his reaction was a very manipulative one. It was, it was setting the stage for a man that you would trust to make salad dressing and popcorn. Um, 
out of nowhere, a little jab at Paul Newman for no reason. <laughs> no. Man who um, gave millions and millions to charity. As as I was as I was um, sifting through my my frustration with with the aspects of this movie that seemed really unrealistic, and 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 thinking about other films in this genre that that were um, that made more of an impact for me, uh, I went to Chinatown, and. Um, and what's amazing is that Chinatown, as different and as as uh, the, the tonally different as that film is, it was only made eight years after this, and it, it feels like it was in a completely different universe of filmmaking. Uh, I yeah. And the guy that 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 is attacking Paul Newman and falls to his death in this is the guy that's holding Jack Nicholson when Roman Polanski slits his... Oh, is that right? Oh, wow. I knew he looked familiar. I didn't place him from that. Wow. His name is Roy Johnson, and he was an actor and a stuntman. Mm -hmm. He Uh, looks like a stunt guy, yeah. Yeah, and and I I find myself wondering if, if Polanski hired him partially because he was aware of his work in a film like this. Probably this was a big movie. Now you know I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go to bat for for a couple seconds because th- there's a lot about this film that knocked me out in the first. Like I said, the first half hour or forty minutes has some filmmaking chops and mojo that just is is really I think inarguably slick and really cool. Um, I remember being like eleven years old when I saw this movie too. I, I saw it on TV though. I didn't see it in the theater. It was like after school, like the, uh, the the afternoon special on channel 11 here. And even as a kid, I didn't know what was going on. I probably didn't watch the whole movie, but I watched like the opening title sequence, uh, his drive from his apartment to Santa Barbara and just pulling up there with the credits and the, and the, and the music and everything. It has, it's just so elegant and fantastic. And I think it's proven by, if you went and looked at the opening of, uh, the first parts of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you'd see how much that drive influenced Tarantino's love of driving in that movie. I mean, there's a lot of it that feels like there's some like he places the camera in his Porsche exactly where it is behind Polanski and Sharon Tate in, the, in, in a lot of the driving scenes in that movie. So there's that. But there's also the fact that you got to really you got to respect a movie that comes out okay chinatown seven years later but you've also got unbelievable bows to this movie in big lebowski and once upon a time in hollywood and an inherent vice and also in um you know the the altman movie with elliot gould uh the the long goodbye these are all movies that are that 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 created the, the the atmosphere of la noir around hollywood and this movie was an inspiration to, I mean, a huge array of genius films. And it was inspired by stuff, sure. I mean, The Big Sleep, there's a lot of references even in it because Lauren Bacall actually basically plays the wheelchair-bound General Sternhagen, who's her father in The Big Sleep, plays the same character as the woman in the beginning of this who hires him. I mean, there's a lot of references to Kiss Me Deadly which I think is a better movie because it it is just 
it's about a bad guy. The character in that is not a person we're supposed to like. And his he's ruthless and brutal, and the movie is a, is uh, well tuned to that. But uh, I just feel like there's there's something about this that set the tone for cool um, for the LA detective that was inspirational to a whole generation of people. And I mean, you know, you could say that it feels like it was decades later that Chinatown was made, but seven years. That movie, you know, this movie made an impact on people. And I think, you know, some of that is to do with like, I think Jack Smite keeps the first 40 minutes going like clockwork. It's really elegantly done, like really workmanlike. It's really journeyman, but it's really fast and well edited. And, and you know, I mean, the photography, you, I could just watch the photography go by for, for an hour. It's... In general, I agree with you about the first 40 minutes, but th there are moments in the first 40 minutes that I also think were like, what the hell? Yeah, agreed, agreed. But I felt like even, so for me, yeah, Robert Wagner's one of those moments and things where I'm like, I, nothing is going to make me this guy work for me. Like, I can't buy anything that's happening with him. But in the first scene, I thought they were, I thought Jack Smite was working with it. I thought he knew that and was like incorporating that mess into it in a weird way, like PT PT Anderson, like I could see that screwiness that he got from you know uh, that you see in, in Inherent Vice and in uh, and in um, the firecracker scene in Boogie Nights, you know, where it's just like L.A. kind of unhinged. And I thought that they were going to capture some of that. I thought that's where they were going. The absurdity in the Big Lebowski, I thought, might have been from that too. But I'm going to be really provocative here for a minute, though, and say. Uh, and, and this may be the first chance that the whatever audience we have gets to see us get into a real fight about something. But I, I think just because just because a film is successful and makes a mark, and then ten years later geniuses see it and decide to riff on it, doesn't necessarily imbue the film with genius it just means that it influenced geniuses i didn't say anything about genius i, I never <laughs> mentioned genius it didn't come out of my mouth at all through you but Sorry. i but i will say that i think you're completely <clears throat> wrong and that in the sense that it's it's worthwhile i mean I, I would i would argue that a lot of the reason why i'm i'm interested in talking about the movies we've so far talked about is because we're I, i'm trying to avoid genius movies everybody's talked about the movies everybody accepts as genius movies right that's like whatever you like them or you don't but they've been discussed and picked over we need to talk well, about crappy movies because then nobody can tell us we're wrong about it what what i'd like to think is that we're looking for gold in with mixed in with like you know something so it's neither a piece of crap or 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 a great movie or genius yeah. it's got that we can look at like for instance the fantastic scene with the with the waitress at that diner where he comes into that diner and the only person that Harper gets along with at all is that Liz Wilson like waitress at that diner and he gets her to help him out and she that scene's fantastic and when it's on it's completely on when this movie has it it has it and when it doesn't it falls apart but I just I want to respect where it has where it has it because where it had it influenced some of the biggest movies for me since like some of the, all the movies we've talked about were big for me and i think if if 
the Coen brothers are, are reviewing a movie or uh, movie history and saying, well, let's use some stuff from Harper that had some cool stuff. And I, I, I want to talk about what they liked about it. But if you guys want to be on a negative trip and like just be all dark about how things are genius enough. It's getting tough here. I think we need to bring somebody in. We need to bring somebody in to settle us down. Before we do, I just have to cop to the fact that I think I'm still really bitter about <laughs> Little Drummer Girl. I'm yeah. really upset about that. You're really upset that we didn't like <laughs> you wanna you wanna guarantee that I'll never ever recommend bringing a movie on here that I actually like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There is somebody the early part of the film is when he pulls into the estate of, of Lauren Bacall's estate and there's a guard at the gate and, and the dog, the guard dog with the gate is, at the gate is a golden retriever. You know you're, you're in trouble. You're in trouble there. <laughs> to bring into the show now uh, who's going to join us. Um, uh, she's watching the show right now. But I've I've uh, I've sent her an invitation, so she should be uh, clicking in soon. Um, Who is it? Oh, suspense is killing me there, man. What's happening? The suspense is. Uh, she saw she's not here yet. She's, the mistake was she's been watching the show and she decided. So she doesn't have anything to do with us. But we can keep talking. We can keep talking until she gets here. Okay. I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's not Lauren Bacall. Um, <laughs> I'll just throw out another line I love in this movie. Little exchange at the bar where the bartender says, "We don't do domestic after six p.m." Yeah, right on. That's from the. That is from the book. Okay. okay. There's a new person who we've decided needs to get to have her say every once in a while. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to. Welcome you to the very first episode of Mom's Corner. Hey, welcome. Oh, I love that. Oh, those graphics, Matthew. Well, Mom gets to have say on this movie. <laughs> welcome. Oh, hi. Oh, look Hello at you there. all together. It's just such a thrill for your mother. I cannot describe it. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it, is, it was really fun watching this movie for uh, some of the reasons that we've discussed. Did you watch it together? We, we did. did watch it together. We did. Um, and uh, one for me, there was a big fun thing in that Right about that time, this is to do with Paul Newman, who played the lead, you'll remember. And um, it was right about that time, uh, after actually the Russians are coming, just came out around that time too. And, and right after it, um, Paul Newman's wife, Joanne, and my ex-husband, the dad of my great guys here, um uh and i went out for dinner because joanne was thinking about doing a movie with alan and they were talking about it so um this is just so legendary and this is quite a while ago 
Um, so we go to this French restaurant in the West 50s in New York. And, and I'm just like, oh my God, that's Paul Newman. And look at those blue eyes. Oh my God. And as amazing as they are in film, they were even more amazing. In they person. are amazing in person. It's just like, oh, come on. Now, let me just interject a second that you've met, you've met a lot of famous people at this point. You're not, it's, it's, you're used no. to meeting actors. No. And, I mean, you'd gone yeah. to Nathan's with, with Jackie O for crying out. Jackie Kennedy and, and uh, Mike Nichols. Yes, indeed. And, and dad went into to the, to uh, the, the kind of diner area there at, at, at Nathan's and said, listen, I've got Jackie Kennedy in the car. And we need a table. And then he comes back very, he said, the guy said, I don't care who you've got in the car. You know, there's no room in here. Like he, of course, didn't believe him. But uh, there she was. So, yeah, no, it wasn't that. It was just that he's so incredible looking. Um, so anyway, we're seated at the restaurant and I'm sit seated next to Paul. And um, Joanne and Alan are on the other side of the table. And you who know me know that I really love to eat and I enjoy food, um, that there are three things that I will never eat. I will never touch them. They are snails, frog's legs, and octopus. Um, the octopus was because I saw a documentary on Channel 13 in 1964 where the octopus was so intelligent. Anyway. So just that's the background to this. So sitting there and we're, we're ordering things. I'm, I'm just kind of glancing up at his blue eyes. And um, we place our orders. And of course, he orders frog's legs. And I think, oh, so sitting even the waiter brings the frog's legs. And I'm starting on my hors d'oeuvre. And all of a sudden, from my right, I hear, would you like a frog's leg? Oh, of course. Oh, yes. Oh, please. <laughs> There's a frog's leg on my plate and I, and I eat it. <laughs> and it was and the greatest you... meal you've ever had. It, it was the what? It the was the greatest meal you've ever had. You know, I actually didn't taste it. It, it didn't really taste like chicken, like they say. Uh, I don't think, but I didn't taste it. It was just those wow. incredible eyes. So I haven't forgotten that. And that's where we're talking, I guess, late 60s. Wow. Shortly after this. So after Harper. So after Harper, but not that long. So he looked pretty much like he looked in the movie, only, only in person. There was an wow. extra element. So that's mom's comment. Well, nice. Thank you for joining us, um, Mom. I, I told this story last last week, actually, about Paul Newman. Uh, somebody had posted a story about a woman that lived in the town that he was in in, in uh, Connecticut. And she went into an ice cream parlor, and Paul Newman was there uh, having ice cream. And she tried to keep herself together and freaked out because Paul Newman's there. And she ordered her ice cream. and 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 got the order and left and then got out to her car and and couldn't find her cone anywhere and and she thought oh i must have gotten so flustered i left it in in the uh in the ice cream parlor she goes back in and says uh 
I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I think I, I didn't take my cone with me. And Paul Newman's still there, and he's kind of smiling, and the woman behind the counter is smiling. And Paul Newman looks at her and goes, uh, you put it in your purse. <laughs> <laughs> she got a little flustered. She did. I understand. I completely understand. Wow. <laughs> well, well, thank you guys well, for this wonderful show. I, I love watching this. Thank you so much well, for popping in. Thank for the you. very first episode of Mom's Corner. Thank you. <laughs>
Uh, I'll try. Uh, uh, that's easy. You can do that, right, Matthew? Yeah. Or I can remove him from the stream and drink. Okay, now he's. You can hear me, okay, right? I can hear you fine. I wonder what the heck is going on. And now Adam's gone. We can talk about him. Um, did you want to play uh, the the car the the car sequence? Uh, yeah, some of the car stuff. But I want Adam to see that. Um, so let's let's talk about him while he's gone. <laughs> yeah, because he's not here to defend himself. He now now he's back, and he's sideways. He's sideways, Adam. Why am I sideways? I don't understand what's don't any of this. this very avant-garde. This show is extremely modern. There you go. That's now right. you're right side up. That's better. Can you hear people? Can you hear me now? Yeah, but I'm not really listening to anything. <laughs> I didn't think so. I want to point something out. that We have a car chase in this movie. I'll show you a little piece of it. Here we go. And then two years later, a mere two years later, we get this car chase. Clearly, uh, Julie Harris was not a good stunt driver. <laughs> the lesson is, Steve McQueen, don't don't fight with him against the automobile car chase thing, because yeah. he's going to win that. Um yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a little bit unfair pulling that on any on any movie because that you know, I'm I'm a big fan of Bullet. See, like here's an example, like Bullet, I'd never recommend bringing on the show because I love it too much. I couldn't bear to hear you guys like make fun of it the way I know you would. I wouldn't make fun of it. I love that movie, and and see, that's a movie that that still in the '60s and with the you know, there's that whole jazz club. Ah, oh my god <laughs> that's great that was exciting action shot it's an action shot <laughs> wow because <laughs> a, a crotch that's called a crotch dive in the, in the business <laughs> going on adam has a special gimbal that he has at home for just for that stunt it's a gag we worked it out <laughs> Fired by that chase scene. <laughs> um, 
try to make a talk show really um, interesting. But you know, they have that. They, they, there's a lot of stuff in um, in in Bullet that's very uh, very sixties, and the, the whole sequence in the in the jazz club with the. Yeah, but you're, you're also talking about John Borman, dude. I mean, it's like John Borman is, you know, one of the more like out there guys at the point, right? Right, but I'm saying it the, it works. They they make use of of the time period in a way that works and that I buy, rather than I I didn't buy. There was almost no human behavior in this movie that I bought as human behavior. I felt like it. I, yeah, well, I don't, but I don't care about that in a, in a romp like this. I, I does well. Adam really hated that comment. It really went away now. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Adam. I didn't mean to offend you. Um, can you hear me? We can hear you. We just can't see you. We can hear you. I can't. <laughs> I, I can hear I you perfectly. We have to get you another computer. I think we'll send you something else. But uh, you can hear us, right? Now he's left the room. He now doesn't like it anymore. Um, yeah, I, I just, I just feel like you know, like we were saying. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, okay. So there's nothing in Harper that really rang your bell at all. I, I, I really, uh, you know, I was, re- I was disappointed, but I was really ready to go based on that first opening half hour, forty minutes. I really was, and I was willing to take the fact that it was unrealistic, and you know, I mean. So were a lot of other movies that I like. It didn't. It it's just that it didn't make good on on its promise, um, and it had uh, it had uh, too much Shelley Winters in it. <laughs> I think that's what my problem is. I th- I don't know that it had too much Shelley Winters in it, but I think it had too much Shelley Winters snoring in it. <laughs> I think it had too much Shelley Winters at, at, a, at a point in her career where I don't. I'm not. It's not my favorite period of her work. I think she's been great. This was not, she was playing up some stuff. I didn't think she had to work so hard. Uh, I found it a little bit like uh, a little rough. Those those scenes were a little rough for me. You know what would have helped her work? If more of it had been underwater. (laughs) Exactly. She needed to drown in this movie, like in any other movie that she did, and it would be great. She drowns in like seven movies, right? It's like everything. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking um, of multiple uh, multiple appearances in movies, uh, you know that that Struther, first of all, Struther Martin's character in this, this was like three years before the Charlie Manson murders, which I, I thought was interesting because the the whole cult like right movie. amazing, was yeah. that in the book? Yes, the cult was in the book. Cult is in the book in 1949. Wow, interesting, wow. interesting. And uh, and and Struther Martin was in like I, I think like four or five Paul Newman movies. So I, I think cool Fish and the Paul Newman. They were friends. Uh, it felt like he was uh, a, a lucky charm and kept bringing him on. But but he was in Cool Hand Luke. He was in Slapshot. Yeah, he is, and I love Strother Martin. I love, and I think, I mean, that's to me like that scene and that stuff in this movie is weird, but I loved it. Like, I loved the weirdness of that whole meeting with him and Strother Martin with the falcon that he had. And you know, I, there's some stuff in here that I think is worth 
it's worth noting and noting how much of an impact that had very much like on on for on pt anderson's view of of like noir la human trafficking uh you know migrant workers yeah which was the kind of the stand-in for the water the like the 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 water thing in chinatown you know there was the the underground thing also i got i mean let's talk about things i other things i i really liked i mean i thought robert weber was amazing i i really like robert weber a lot but i thought you know at a time when 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 people playing like really disturbed unhinged characters in that mold was kind of bright and a little bit new. He, he really captured that kind of noir character that you just don't want to know anything about. Like, you know, his, the dark recesses of this guy's world are, are almost too much for Harper to know anything about. Like he's really creepy in that movie. What, what did he keep called? What was his nickname for, for old Paul? stick? Old stick, yeah. What was that about? That was weird. Very strange. But you know, he's uh how much like how much he wanted to torture people, like he was so excited about torturing uh Julie Harris in this movie. That was you know, again, like like it or not, the influence on Tarantino, again, you can't deny that's like right out of that's like right out of the handbook. It it, it was uh it, it made a foot fetish, uh it paved right? the way fetish filmmakers yes exactly exactly uh, oh uh, the, the 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 photograph that i sent you is still oh yes this is just my own personal favorite shot in the movie uh here Let this is they finally find the guy they've been looking for and he's oh, dead yeah and this is how they find him <laughs> That's him by the toilet. And I'm like, yeah. wow. You know, I mean, good for you, Jack Smite and Conrad Hall. Like, set this up. We're not going to have any, we're not going to, like, have this be mysterious at all, how we feel about this guy. Like, we're really going to let you know this guy's, this guy's no good. Yeah. yeah. I'm also going to, at the risk of you guys making fun of me. Bring it. Um. The production design of the men's room in the diner that he has the big scene with the cop in, yeah, was so realistic of those crappy, dirty men's room with the towel rack thing that the endless towel and the phone and yeah. the, the old porcelain sink, with yeah. The, it, it, I don't know if it's because we're watching this in the age of COVID, but but when he shoved those toilet tissues in his mouth, I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> I thought he was uh, doing a brand, like he stole that from Brando, but then I realized that- Brando stole it from him. Brando stole that from him. Brando loved this movie. And uh, the other thing is there was a shot in, in um, Wa Robert Wagner's uh, little, cabin on the grounds of the of the estate a little surf cabin yeah there was a, a shot of that with a a giant goblet in the foreground like where my where my hands are in my shot right now a giant goblet filled with with Ma uh, bar matches 
bar matches mm-hmm. that I looked at that shot and I said, clue, clue, there's going to be a the bar matches from the place by the beach or something. No, not, not never, nothing. Doesn't he doesn't he get some matches somewhere late? That's later, though. Later, but this the thing of the it was like it was so big, this giant goblet filled with bar matches. I'll tell tell Connie Hall you didn't like his work, and you'll you know, no, I liked his work. I just, um, there was was, something I wanted you to talk about a little bit because it it was an homage to the giant telephone in Top Secret. (laughs) (laughs) You could, um, talk to me about the, um, the plethora of low angle shots. What about it? I who, can talk who? to you about the, the 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 strange choice to do two. It was the only place in the movie that they did it, uh, but but both times they were at Lauren Bacall's house. Yeah, the they did this like weird, impossible angle impossible anywhere other than on a sound stage overhead angle of of her yes her, yeah with the wheelchair and the bat and like her yeah. bath set up and everything yeah they incredible set design on that room amazing yeah they did it once and you kind of you kind of went oh that's an interesting choice and then they went back to see her again and they, they just threw it in again for some reason it was like yeah. you know leave the camera up there let's let's get that angle every time we're here but there was a lot of very low angle stuff of uh, Arthur Hill. There was a very Hitchcocky shot where the camera is on the floor and he's all the way in yeah. another room. I know. I noticed that, and it reminded me a lot of that Hitchcock scene that you just you broke down when we watched. Uh, well, we were talking about Vertigo, but yeah, there's a great video essay on Vertigo where. Yeah where the two actors are in different rooms talking to each other and there's that low angle. Yeah. And there's something about the shot, you know, he's lying and and there's something about the way that it's designed that, you know, that, you know, Arthur Hill is, is lying. And, and that's the shot that tells you he's not to be trusted. And it's yeah. something about that empty chair in the foreground where you feel like, I don't know what that chair represents, like Paul Newman kind of in there actually knowing the truth or something, but it's really, yeah, that's a it's a really notable shot. I think that chair is representing Barack Obama for. <laughs> uh, there's also in the film. There's also these. Um, in, in, in this is where you could kind of occasionally tell that 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 the director had some like television background and training is is in these kind of like. Th- these these snappy transitions from one scene to another, mm-hmm. but like um, Shelley Winters when they're at the bar in the in the in the whole sequence that introduces her character, and she gets she proceeds to get more and more drunk, and at a certain point she starts to pass out, and she kind of falls out of frame, and then boom lands yeah. on a, a couch, and you really match like, cut match cut to her couch fall yeah. She, they've, they've changed locations. There were a few transitions like that that were like very, very, um, they were very kind of television 101 transitions. You know, you got to find artful ways from going time. I guess. To 
locations. I, I, I guess so. I, to me, that that stuff always when it's 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 something kind of fun and it's also i i really got to appreciate the amount of compact storytelling that goes into those shots those things though they sometimes they feel like cliches and whatnot but getting you know that's 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 a whole car ride home you see a whole bunch of stuff happening in that in that one cut it, it's uh, it actually tells something so i don't know i i i kind of loved that that you felt like you were watching a, a, a classic episode of TV in this movie. There was something about it. You know, I will say the pace was amazing, even though I never knew where it was going. It was always really, it felt like we were on something going somewhere, but it never mattered. That was the problem. You know, I did feel like I was on something. No. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I will, I will give this a second watch and reevaluate it. If you will watch little drummer girl another time, not going to happen. Cause I, I <laughs> I'm watching I'm not, this I'm isn't watching. the movie. This isn't the movie to, to do that for. I don't have enough investment in this. You have a drive. You drive a hard bargain. I'm not, I'm just not gonna, I'm not going to make anybody watch this. I don't care enough about it to make anybody watch it again. Um, Hey, what about hey, did, did, in terms of uh, our next film? Yes. Uh, do do you have either of you ever seen the film Morgan? I have uh, never seen it. I know what it is, but I've never seen Morgan. I haven't seen that movie literally in about like fifty years, but I remember it making a huge impression on me. And I want to I want to vote that as a possible candidate. Okay, uh, we might want to stay away from good movies though. I don't know that it's a good movie. What is? Who, who tell me about it? It's David Warner, who's one of one of the one of my favorite actors ever. Uh, directed by Carol Rice, who is no slouch. Right. Let's face it. Um, and it's a, I guess it's a satirical look at the upper class in London in the sixties. Uh, is what I what it looks like. Um, it's available on Amazon, I, I believe. Let's see. No, well, it's not streaming on Amazon. I don't know where we would find it. Oh, okay. Um, There's also the Magic Christian, if anybody's interested. You want to do a comedy? Well, I don't know. It feels like a, a comedy's up, doesn't it? A little bit? Maybe so. That's only available. No, we can rent that uh, on Magic Christians available on Amazon. So we could. Uh, Mad, not, Mad, we're Mad, not paid by Amazon. We don't have any affiliation with them, by the way. No affiliation with Amazon. We, we just like to let people know where they can actually get a hold of the movie easily in case uh, they want to see it. And right now, looks like uh, Amazon. Not only, not, not only are we not paid by Amazon, but we actually pay Amazon a lot of money. I do, yeah. They never pay me anything. I'm always buying stuff, and um, but I do, I do want to sit. This, I'm going to get on a little tiny soapbox just for a second. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm the old crazy guy that still collects DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff. I believe in physical media, and partly I think we're starting to see that um, not all films that uh, we like transferred over to uh to dvd and blu-ray from vhs when the transfer started um and uh, not and then not all of those are making it over to the digital landscape where they're living supposedly forever for you um so 
if you still have uh, the interest, DVDs are still available through Netflix. DVD players are still easily and readily available, and they can actually plug right into your computers. Um, and DVDs uh, on Netflix, they have a huge catalog. So films that aren't available on any streaming platform will almost invariably be available through um, Netflix DVD or through other places that sell DVDs, uh, use DVDs particularly. But um, uh, it's worth checking out if you love movies because that the, 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 the library is constantly getting smaller, actually, because um, a lot of the classic older films or even movies that you loved growing up with in the 80s aren't really necessarily making it to streaming. They're just not getting digitized. So um, that's my last uh, my last thing I'll say about it because it's kind of like a, an old man complaint, I guess. But um, but it's uh, it's worth thinking about if anybody's really into film and they don't know that that's still available. It's still out there. I don't think I have any more old man complaints. Write them down and give them to me and Adam to say because we're the old men here. I was going to show you some ailments, but I will. I, I won't. Um, I'd like. I'd like to talk about glucosamine for a second. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Magic Christian is available. Well, um, we have enough to talk about with that. <clears throat> oh, there's we'll talk about Peter Sellers, Ringo Starr. It's it's uh, it's an insane, very right. very bizarre movie. I'm and gonna, I'm gonna by, I'll sit in the corner and listen to you guys talk about you know things that smart people talk about magic talk about? i don't i don't know don't everybody has their chance to feel bad but only for a couple minutes matthew <laughs> okay so magic <laughs> christian next week i'm game i haven't seen it in a while i'd All love right. to see it again well if you want it here it is come and get it but <laughs> you better hurry because it's going fast um so there we go the magic christian next week indeed uh written by uh uh the guy wrote candy right and 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 uh the kubrick movie and strange love right all right terry southern terry southern okay Well, great. So uh, that's what we'll do next week. Um, For those of you uh, watching, if you haven't subscribed, please do so. Give this video a like. Keep the lights on for us. Actually, it doesn't keep the lights on. We don't make any money doing this. We're doing this for love and to hang out together. Uh, But do give the video a like and subscribe to our channel. Um, Just before we close, Suzanne Solomon here uh, at a uh, question have we seen sneakers oh, sneaker. um, and, and um that that actually would be a good choice for us at some point i think magic christian sounds like a great thing for us next week but sneakers i would see again next week and, movie, right? redford yeah. yeah yeah and the following week we've got to come up with a, a horror movie for, for yeah. halloween we're gonna do a halloween special for sure yeah all right um, all right well uh, we're going to sign off and uh, see you all next week. Mwah. Mwah. Love you guys. Good night. Be safe. Say, uh, Matthew, say good night and congratulations to mom for us. She did great. Will do.
All right. Bye, Mom. Bye, Mom. Oh, hey. And we got to tell people to go to our website. Right. Because there's yeah. stuff on there. Yeah. There's merch. There's other episodes of the show. You should be subscribed to the show. There's so many episodes, but there's merch and there's stuff and yeah. there's gifts for people. Yeah. There's a t-shirt. There's a, a Silverado poster, all kinds of great stuff. So and check stuff, it out. Stuff is coming up too. We'll be adding stuff to it. Yeah. So check it out at arkinbros.com. You've been listening to the Arkin Brothers Talk About Movies. That's my brother, Matthew Arkin. And that's my brother, Anthony Arkin. And we are interesting, irreverent, and irrelevant. But you can follow us on Instagram anyway. You can also subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch. And you can do it all on our website. Just follow the link on your podcast app. Or if you really want to stalk us, head over to arkinbros.com. You'll learn more about us than anyone would ever want to know.